What the writer is always trying to do is utilize the particular in order to reveal something much larger and heavier than any particular can be, writes James Baldwin. I picked the occasion of the 201st anniversary of the birth of Fyodor Dostoevsky to reread Crime and Punishment. And in that famous 1866 novel, from which the title of this sermon is derived, the particulars revolve around a character named Raskolnikov, an impoverished ex-student who plans to kill a pawnbroker, an old woman who stores money and valuable objects in her flat. He imagines that the money would lift him out of poverty and that he would go on to perform great deeds and convinces himself through a lot of philosophizing that certain crimes are justifiable for certain extraordinary people. If you've ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope, you will hear the characters justify the murder they have committed in a similar fashion. And here comes the spoiler alert for those who have not yet read Dostoevsky's novel. And what's keeping you, I might add? (laughs) Raskolnikov murders the pawnbroker as well as her sister, who unluckily enters the room in the midst of the crime. And the bulk of the novel has to do with what occurs in his psyche afterward. The guilt, the terror of being found out, the overwhelming urge to confess all the continuing internal justifications for what he has done and the ramifications of his actions and inner turmoil on the lives of the people around him. So the question I brought to my recent reading of this novel has to do with the second part of Baldwin's statement, how does Dostoevsky utilize the particular to reveal something much larger and heavier than any particular can be. What relevance might this story have in a society where we are told crime and the purportedly rising crime rates were a major concern in the recent election? What insights might it provide into our monthly theme of the path of change? What meaning might it hold for a congregation whose mission is to deepen connections by nurturing spiritual growth, practicing justice, and inspiring joy. How, for instance, is justice related to crime and punishment? So to begin, it seems appropriate to ask, what is crime? Now, this may seem obvious. My first knee-jerk response is that crime is actions that are against the law. But is that what we mean when we talk about crime? When we hear about the crime rate, does that include all unlawful actions? Short answer, no. An NPR article from November 8th, just a few days ago, by Sandia Dirks, points out that crime rate statistics most often include only a small category of what the FBI calls Index 1 crimes, murder, robbery, rape, 
aggravated assault, larceny, burglary, auto theft, and arson. There will be a test after this, actually. So keep those in mind. But the way the system is set up, perpetrators of what we call crime are more likely to be, like Dostoevsky's character, Raskolnikov, poor people, because that's how crime is defined. Shoplifting, tampons, or diapers counts as crime, but tax evasion, environmental crimes, and wage theft do not. Wage theft is a problem about five times the magnitude of shoplifting, says Alec Karakatsanis, an activist, lawyer, and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Wage theft is when companies steal money from usually low-income workers. Estimates are that this kind of theft costs workers $50 billion a year. In the past decade, the estimated cost of tax fraud has risen to $1 trillion a year. Most of this... Um, caused by the wealthiest individuals and corporations engaging in tax fraud. A report by the European Environmental Bureau in 2020 stated that environmental crime, including logging, mining, waste dumping, and the illegal wildlife trade, is one of the most profitable types of criminal activity worth an estimated $258 billion every year. Interestingly, the title of this report was Crime and Punishment. Yet you won't find these crimes included in crime rates, nor do you hear politicians talk about these when describing how they will address crime. As a society, we paradoxically seem less able to identify and prosecute crime the larger it grows in scope and in the number of participants. When we talk about crime, we are most often referring to the actions of individuals, often in tenuous economic circumstances, often in black and brown communities. One hears in the media, and I am so tired of hearing it, over and over, the comforting phrase, No one is above the law. Would that it were so. But all available evidence challenges that assertion. It is rather an aspirational statement. No one should be above the law. But the flip side of too big to fail is too powerful to be held accountable. The very fact that it sounds reasonable to suggest that someone could run for president so that they won't have to face trial for alleged crimes should give us all a long pause. Interestingly, this license to commit crime granted to the powerful was not lost on Dostoevsky back in 1866. His character, Raskolnikov, in justifying his own crime, turns to examples of the most powerful and respected men in history. Most of these benefactors and founders of mankind, he says, were especially terrible bloodshedders. 
if such a one needs for the sake of his idea to step even over a dead body, over blood, then within himself, in his conscience, he can, in my opinion, allow himself to step over blood. These people are made differently, he thinks, and he refers to Napoleon, who sacks Toulon, makes a slaughterhouse of Paris, forgets an army in Egypt, expends half a million men in a Moscow campaign, and when he dies, they set up monuments to him, and thus, he says, everything is permitted. And thus, everything is permitted for some. Not only are they not held accountable, but they are celebrated, memorialized, elected, protected. Suddenly the question, what is crime, seems to be not so simple at all. Even if no one was above the law, defining crimes only as unlawful acts can leave us adrift in a moral sense. Remember, the Emmett Till anti-lynching law was passed this year. Anti-lynching law. Remember, it was this year that having or performing an abortion abruptly became a crime in some states. Remember that President Biden just this year pardoned all those convicted on prior federal charges or convicted in the District of Columbia of what had once been the crime of simple marijuana possession. Laws are important, of course, but they are also always shifting underneath us. What is the basis for laws? Ideally, to prevent us from causing harm to one another. And there are many times we use the word without a clear idea of the responsible party. We look at the number of people who are unhoused and rightly say that is a crime. Do you hear, oh my friend? We look at the effects of our energy consumption on the Earth's climate with sea levels rising, glaciers melting, storms increasing, and people and creatures suffering, and rightly say, that is a crime. To the outermost strand, do you hear? We look at the ongoing devastation wrought by the white supremacy that is woven into our society and our hearts and rightly say, that is a crime. Through the roar, through the rush, do you hear? There is little doubt that Raskolnikov committed a crime, taking another person's life. And I can criticize and bemoan his self-absorbed justifications for this act as I read Dostoevsky's words, but then I have to ask the question, that Baldwin puts forth. What might this story be asking me to face? As confident as I may be in my critique of corporate crime and the ways that wealth distorts and defeats and defies accountability, there comes a point where I am pointing outward so that I don't have to look inward. 
I have no choice but to confess that looking at crimes in this broader moral sense of causing harms to others, that I am a criminal. I participate in systems that cause harm. The ways I travel, the ways I eat, the goods I purchase, the amenities I take for granted, and the cost of the energy it takes to power them, it doesn't take long to trace these to the harm that is caused to other people, to other creatures, to the earth itself. Now, some of these things which cause harm, these things to which I have been awakened, I don't have the power to change. Some I do have the power to change, and I have found ways in which I have changed them. And some, and this is the hardest to admit, some I have the ability to change, and I have chosen not to. That is the reality of it. And what I found is that I need to sit in that discomfort. The overwhelming urge is to try and justify my choices, to dismiss the issues, to deny my agency, or to simply bury it all within myself, or deflect from this realization with my outrage at the corrupt behavior of forces outside myself. But what I am called to do is to sit with the realization and confess it. As we did with Jan's responsive reading by Rob Eller Isaacs from our hymnal today, I have to confess to hold the reality before me, not to beat myself up. For that only encourages despair or cynicism and renders me powerless to do what good I can but to sit with the hard choices and the awareness of my own complicity in these larger crimes I have noted. If I can do that, I will be humbled when I have the urge to point my self-righteous finger. I will be inspired at my best to more passionately pursue the ways I have chosen to bless the world. I will be filled with compassion when I am tempted to pass judgment. And I may open the way to further changes and even transformation. My particulars are not very attractive, but I must use them. They will not go away because I pretend that they are not there. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. We forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love.